Listener Production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, a tactical sniper who was involved in one of Australia's most intense siege operations. Mate, put the gun down for Christ's sake. What are you doing? Because he knew this kept going. There was only going to be one outcome. Brett Pennell is a former New South Wales police officer who spent nearly 20 years in the force. As part of the tactical operations unit, Brett was involved in high-intensity raids, drug import intercepts and complex, high-profile arrests. One of those jobs saw him make a split-second decision that still impacts him to this day. As soon as I saw Sierra One's face because he was coming from the other side, I knew what the outcome was. We'll hear about that job, but to start, we're going back earlier in Brett's career. He's on a general duties patrol and he's just received a call. We got called to a fatal accident at Tyres Hill, and essentially it's a sort of an S-Bend type of um, road set up, 60 kilometres an hour, right in the middle of the suburbia. And unfortunately, there'd been some rain and a small vehicle had literally just lost it, not through any speeding or that we were aware of, just literally lost control of the vehicle and got T-boned. When myself and Peter arrived, we literally pulled up with um, the Ambos at the same time. And it was a pretty confronting scene. There was uh, lots of people standing around in, in shock. And we got out of the car and we, you know, we went towards the vehicle and there was a lady ejected and she was, she was on the ground. And I was literally three metres behind the Ambo. The Ambo quickly checked the lady's uh, pulse and just declared a deceased straight away and he said, right, let's go. And then we went to the vehicle and went through the same process. There was a lady in the back. He checked her vital signs and said, uh, she's deceased as well. You need to get her out of the car so we can get to the, the other two that are in the front. So I literally pulled this lady out of the vehicle and just placed her on the ground. Like there was nothing else we could do at the time because there were still two people in the front of the car that we need to check on. And ultimately one of those ladies was also deceased. And one of them was alive and, yeah, it was a pretty uh, pretty ordinary scene, if, if I could put it that way. I didn't really realise at the time of what a young 25-year-old guy was thinking of it. But that wasn't the worst, if I could explain, wasn't the worst of that, that uh, job. Um, myself and Peter then had to go and do the death messages. I remember we went to a house in Hamilton and um, these people were from a Macedonian background. Uh, from memory and uh, we went to the first house and I think they already knew but you know we went in the house and it was quite quite a difficult scene 
family members, uh, you know, would distraught as as you would expect, and and quite emotional and animated. I hadn't really experienced that previously, um, so that was that was challenging and confronting. And the other thing about delivering death messages is that you can never be taught is how do you leave? How do you how, how do you what words do you use to say thank you? Uh, we've we've done what we need to do here. We've tried to offer empathy, but how do you leave? And again, as a young man, and I was as I said, I was fortunate enough to be with Peter Wood and just a great human. But probably what was the most confronting thing of that job was when we walked outside of that first house we could hear the people from the next house, which was the next relatives that we had to go and deliver death messages to from a block away. I don't say this disrespectfully, but wailing. You could hear that they clearly knew what was coming. So um, you imagine getting in a car and thinking, I've got to drive around the corner now and I, already know, I can already hear what's going on. But, yeah, it was a, a very confronting scene for a young man. Didn't really probably realise at the time how confronting I thought it was and, and what impact it had on me. And, and and to be honest, I didn't really think about it until many, many years later when um, I was going through some um, sessions with a psychologist and, and she picked that job for some reason out of all the jobs that I'd been involved in in the cops where people would think may have caused me some grief. She picked that one to do some um, re, uh, refocus therapy on, on yeah, traumatic incidents that's interesting on a number of levels Brett um, your time in the police you worked in some very very high level areas you know part of the uh, tactical operations unit you're a police sniper you've worked in some really really high pressure environments it's it's interesting that you know a professional who's talking to you years and years later focuses on a on a on a job like this that ha- having said that though Brett it's uh, you, you know you would attest as much as anybody that one of the worst jobs, if not the worst job that you can do in the in the police. It's not not even attending those fatals, which is, you know, young coppers, some of them 19, 20 or 25, attending fatals is, it's sort of rough, but it's not a patch on having to get in the car and go and inform and give those death notices and forming next to kin, is it? That's, you're walking up those driveways knowing that you're bringing a dark cloud to those families that's never going to leave. It's, um, I would say, the most difficult job. By far. Um, I can probably still remember the six or seven that I did. I could nearly tell you exactly where they were. Um, you'd, you'd have to be made out of stone not to uh, feel for what you're about to do. And out of the six or so that I personally did, you don't know what you're walking into. Like I did one once where we were told this person was estranged from the family, had nothing to do with them for years and years and years, and we were just expecting you know, a bit of an, oh yeah, okay, thanks thanks for that. We actually arrived on the door and it was a family reunion and they went to went literally to water realising that they were never going to be able to repair that that relationship. So yeah, it's a it's as you said, mate, it's a it's a tough gig and all that other stuff around, you know, dangerous jobs and making decisions and pressure. The death messages, mate, I could certainly do without it's a shocker. And mate, I tell you, you wind the clock back another 10 years before that. This was getting phased out, Brett, when I was in the job, that if you were the officer and you're often a young constable that attend that fatal, then you've got to go and form next of kin. And you've got to get the family member in the patrol car drive to the mortuary. 
you've got to do an ID of the deceased to get a formal identification for the coroner's case. The next step, mate, and they phase this out, but th- then those young coppers would have to actually attend the post-mortem. Yeah, and well, and, and Brent, just to add one other step there, mm. I think I did my third deceased at Ride Hospital and I had to go and ask the family if they were prepared to consent to have the person's eyes removed. You know, just how do you expect anybody to ask those questions of someone you don't know? You've just told them their the loved one's passed away. You know, it's a very, yeah, I, I think about that now and, you know, as a parent, as a colleague and a mate, how difficult that could, and people just don't even think about that. But that is another side of policing. That's it's one of the most difficult sides of policing, of, of dealing with those sorts of situations. If I could take you to February 2001, a job which is known as the Tumut Siege, you were sent down as a, a sniper with the Tactical Operations Group. Can you walk us through your involvement in that job? Local police from Tumut had arrested a gentleman, James Allen, and in December the previous year was supposed to appear at court in uh, January of the next year and failed to appear. So as per normal process, the local magistrate issued a, an arrest warrant and this property where this gentleman was at was in quite a remote location. Uh, when I say property, this gentleman lived in a three by three metre wooden shack, no running water, no electricity. He had um, a caravan and some old vehicles around this this hut, as, as best you could describe it, tin hut with timber boards. The hut itself was approximately 150 metres from the roadway up a, up a driveway. But as they were driving up towards the, uh, towards the hut, uh, one of the gents who who had been involved in the initial arrest felt a little bit uneasy, and that's just the class of his experience. That you know, driving onto a, a remote property sometimes is is a bit unnerving, and he uh, he started to use the loud hailer on the police vehicle to call out to this gentleman and and say, you know, James, it's the police. We need to come and have a chat to you. And he was doing this as they're driving slowly towards this hut, and the gentleman came out with a rifle and and. Uh, raise it up at them and pointed at them. The driver of the vehicle, who's a quite a tall man, opened his door and leant down so the door could give him some cover and was reversing the vehicle at the same time to get out of there. When they got to the gate, the offsider jumped out, opened the gate, and they, you know, they reversed out and they went back onto the roadway, which was at a location where the offender couldn't see them because there was a slight mound between the hut and the roadway. They were there and they called for backup and then within minutes the gentleman then was at the top of this mound that I spoke of and was pointing the gun at them again. So this time they reversed well away and in fact went about a kilometre and a half up the road to the nearest farmhouse and again called for assistance. So that was about eight o'clock in the Friday morning. Um, A normal response to an incident like that which is deemed high risk is that um, State Protection Support Unit although I think they are now called the Tactical Operations Regional Support. They were called, but as you could appreciate, it's a very remote location and people are coming from other country towns all around the place, so it was going to take a number of hours for, for people to get there. The first tactical guys to arrive on scene, at that stage, they had still not been given permission for what we call SWAT, which is Special Weapons and Tactics. 
So although they had their M4 rifles with them in the vehicle, they were not authorised to use them or carry them because that's the way the protocols work. You need an assistant commissioner to authorise you to um, use special weapons. Being good operators as they were, they knew that the best thing you need to have is observations on the on the individual. So they drove down and about a kilometre down from the house, there's a, there's a fork in the road and they were about to turn left to go to the fork, you know, which is where the property is, and there's the gentleman on the road with the gun. So they veer to the right, take off two or 300 metres, ditched the car, um, got and got out and, and took cover, and basically that's where things really set off. At the time, senior police were contacted. They, they deployed the SPSU along with negotiators, which is the norm, and... A number of hours later, the the SPSU guys identified the offender back at the hut. So what is normal process then is to surround, contain, and when you're ready, negotiate with the individual. Got a negotiator team up there because they couldn't ring the individual. They were going to have to use a loud, loud hailer. They initiated communication with, uh, with the offender over a loud hailer. There was a number of negotiators behind a big tree, 90 to 100 metres further up the valley from where the, the hut was. And as soon as they started talking, he came out and shot at them and hit the tree that they were behind. Now, up until that point, the uh, the senior leadership of the police was happy for the local tactical operators to manage the situation, which is fine. After that happened, there was obviously a change of thought and we were deployed. So I got a phone call about 3pm on the Friday. I was supposed to start work at 6pm, so I got recalled into work. So myself another sniper and six operatives flew down to Tumut and were briefed on what was going on. Earlier that morning, the offender had actually come out of the hut and actually made his way towards the uh, towards the negotiations uh, location and to a point that, you know, there were some operatives who thought they were going to need to use lethal force to protect themselves. Fortunately, he turned around and went back um, and back to the hut as per normal. Uh, myself and... The senior snipers, so I was of the two of us, I was the junior one, he was the senior one. We were given orders to, uh, or you know, a briefing to go out and take up positions on what we called the white side and I was on the black side. And despite what people think, the sniper's role is not just to have a fire capability. Our predominant role is actually to provide intel. So for me to do that probably took me two to three hours to actually get in position because I had to, you know, go a long way out, stalk in. You realise you don't like that position. So a very fundamental about stalking is you never move sideways across where your target is. So if you get to a position and you don't like it, you've got to go all the way back out, you know, to a safe position, move around. Like if you could think of a wagon wheel. So you come in, no, that's no good. Go all the way back out, get back on. So this took me about two or three hours crawling on my guts. I set myself up. I did some gardening, which is a term we use to describe placing foliage around you so you can't be seen. It's it's not like um, it's not like mash. You don't walk around with you know twigs sticking out of your hat, although some people do. Uh, that's not about that. Um, foliage in the bush is you know to conceal yourself, and it's foreground, midground, background, and between the, the three of those um, things prevents the human eye from picking you up or at least um, identifying a human shape. So I did a bit of gardening while I was there and uh, and got myself set up and laid there for the best part of six hours. The negotiators constantly tried to make 
conversation with the individual. At best, you'd get a off every now and then, at best. The alpha team, which is what we call the arrest team, they were coming up with plans on how could we arrest this gentleman. And ultimately, New South Wales Police, which is a standard process or practice, is that they engage with psychiatrists when there's these um, types of uh, you know, lengthy seizures. They engage with psychiatrists to try and understand the, the person, what tactics will work, won't work. My understanding was that the psychiatrist said, look, this bloke's in an episode and you could be here for a week. It's not going to change. He, he, he thought, he genuinely thought we were Martians. He thought we were the FBI, come up with a, a multiple other terms, but they, they were his language. So what they decided to do, which was very, very unusual, was use um, third-party intervention. And in the negotiation world, that's the last resort. Third-party intervention is using someone who's not a trained police negotiator to communicate with the, the offender in this case. Uh, a very lay reason why they don't use third-party intervention is because there's been plenty of examples in the world where the offender says, you know, I'm only going to talk to Brent and Brent being a family member, Brent being an ex-girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. And when the person then is allowed to talk to that third party, they then commit suicide or they act out aggressively. So it's an uncontrollable. So they very, very rarely, if ever used. But in this occasion, we really had run out of options. So what they decided to do was they got the the property owner um, to make a voice recording, and the idea being, well, so we're not going to put him in harm's way. It'd just be a pretty uh, benign, you know, this is Barry, mate. This re these really are the police. You need to do what they say, and it was just very benign like that. So they brought the tape out to the field. They played it over the loud hailer, and nothing, no response. Our commander then recalled us, and what that means is, you know, Brett, pack up your bongos and come back to the command post. We're going to do a deliberate action, which is which is a, a, an arrest plan based on our timings, our choosing, when we're going to do it, how we're going to do it, which gives it the best chance of success. So took me an hour or so to get out, um, went back, had a briefing, and we were going to attempt a uh, deliberate action arrest of this gentleman because we all just believe that. And, ge and genuinely believe, like, nothing was changing. It, it had been the same all day. He's, he's a threat with a firearm, and if it goes into night, it can get pretty dangerous. So the simplest explanation of the um, of the arrest plan was that we were going to use two dogs, because back then we'd been using two dogs to make arrests. It's quite an effective option. And what we would do was uh, we would fire sound and flash devices um, to hit the roof, get him outside of this hut, one of the snipers would then um, put um, CS gas into the caravan and into the hut so he couldn't go back in there. And then we'd, when it was the right timing, we'd release these two dogs, one from either side, one from the white side, one from the black side, and uh, the, the dogs would make the arrest. That essentially was the plan. I was nominated to go on the white side on this occasion. I had a dog with me and I also had another operator with me. We got the call, yep, make the arrest happen. My senior sniper, he fired the sound of flash devices. The first sound of flash hit the roof and started going off, so it bangs about eight times. Like, they're just big firecrackers, really. Loud sound, flash, and I remember the gentleman, he just stood up, put his hat on, locked the door, picked his gun up, and just went straight at the team. Sierra 1, as I use the term, uh, the sniper, that was the first part of his 
his role, his next role was more difficult, and that was to get the gas into the van and into the hut. And what he realised, so he, he fired the first um, canister into the caravan, spot on, just amazing work under the pressure. But then he had to move to an oblique left to get an angle on the hut, and by doing so, inadvertently had opened himself up to this guy could now see him with the gun. So the offender came up and started shooting. I could hear the directions from the team. I could hear and see gunfire, and I I jumped down and tried to get a sight picture, but the sun literally was coming straight over the top of the gentleman's head into my scope, so I had a white out on my scope. Um, I, I juggled around and tried to get a sight picture. I, I, I thought I got a sight picture, and I squeezed, um, and, but I knew I missed I knew I missed straight away because he he ducked because one of the other guys started returning fire from the alpha team and I could hear, you know, things going on. I could hear gas being fired. I could hear the team yelling directions. Um, I jumped back down on the ground. I could hear uh, Papa 3, which was um, one of the SPSU teams, and he was calling. He's reloading. I, I then heard um, Sierra One. Um, I heard Sierra One. I don't like to use the word screaming because he wasn't screaming, because that that gives a connotation that he 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 wasn't in control. He was absolutely in control, um, but he was screaming in the sense of saying, "Mate, put the f- gun down!" Like it. He's. Um, His delivery was like, mate, put the gun down for Christ's sake. What are you doing? Because he knew this kept going. This, you know, there was only going to be one outcome. But unfortunately, the gentleman spun around and brought the weapon up. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to get a sight picture. And I squeezed the trigger. And I knew I hit him straight away. Um, I called it on the radio. I, was, I said, "Yeah, Sierra Two, I've shot the offender. He's on. He's on the green side of the hut." I then picked up my magazine, put it back in my weapon, actually my weapon again. And although I knew I'd hit him, and I knew where I hit him, I knew he wasn't going to be a threat. But I still, you know, I wasn't running, but I was it was a quite a fast, brisk walk, and I was just going in, and, and because I couldn't see him, because he dropped behind this car. If you sort of think I'm looking past the car. And my offsider was to my left, and um, yeah, we, you know, we went in, and and I I actually saw Sierra one before I, I saw the deceased at this point, and as soon as I saw Sierra one's face, because he was coming from the other side, as soon as I saw his face, I knew what the outcome was. But the team went into um, all round protection, and um, the team went and checked his vitals, which was obvious to anybody that the gentleman was deceased. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was the that was the job, mate. And then you know, you talk about the investigation of that was just so difficult for for people because um, we're in a very remote location. You've literally got forty or fifty police involved. How do you interview all those people? How do you you know what I mean? Like it was it was a it was a very difficult situation anyway, and and the remoteness made it even more difficult for investigators.
Brett, this is uh, it's 22 years ago, uh, but you know the emotion that this wells up in you as you relay this story. Um, I think you know most of us, most people listening to this, we're we're very used to that the somewhat robotic you know, depiction of of the sniper. You know the classic. So, you know, the, the, the Bradley Cooper sniper in the movies and, and it's almost, you know, robotic, no emotion, no nothing. Um, what I'm seeing here from you, Brett, is, is, is the totally, the total opposite end of that spectrum. And um, can I just ask the, 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 the impact that that action has, that, you know, pulling that trigger and, and, and taking someone's life, it's that minute physical action on your part that squeezing of the trigger and the devastating outpack, impact on the on the recipient, which is, of course, it's fatal. How do you work through that? Is that something that, that is hard, even with your training, even having shot thousands and thousands of rounds in training? There must be nothing to compare it to actually being there and pulling that trigger in those circumstances. Yeah, it's a great question. Um It's it's interesting. I've I've been challenged by people who are not fans of police uh, over the years, and uh, I remember someone making a comment once: um, when you practice what you're doing, as in as you said, shooting thousands of rounds at bits of paper, you're actually practicing to kill someone. And I said, "Yeah, you, you, you're you're 100 correct." So the physical capability or, or skill is you can teach a monkey to shoot to be quite honest but it's the it's the human decision making capability because again this myth of um snipers um being given a green light or a, an order to shoot does not exist well it certainly didn't exist pre the lint search cafe i think it may have changed but i can explain it so that's what's called a superior order certainly in that's in the military, but in New South Wales police at the time, and certainly all the way up until the Lynch siege, no person can direct anybody to use their firearm in New South Wales police. And for a very good reason. Um, I own the outcome. And and not going to have a problem with that, to be honest, although this looks different. <laughs> but um, this this myth that you'd have a boss standing in a Kamapo saying, take him out, it, it's bullshit. It doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen for a reason, and exactly that, that the individual who's, who's deciding um, to take that action can't do it um, with a frivolous nature. I don't know if that's even the right word, but, you know, you've, if you, you join the police for a reason, right, and, and, and then you become the TRU for a reason, and I can assure you, it's, you don't join the cops to shoot someone, you don't join the TRU to shoot someone. It's, it's a very real possibility when you get into that role but it's not why you do the role and, and, and if that was your, you had that level of psychology where you're in the wrong job anyway. The difficulties, with, and, and I'm, I'm surprised, Brent, to be honest, um, I, I can talk about this for hours on end and it doesn't upset me, but then sometimes when you put a frigging mic in front of me, mate, I, it, it gets to me. But um, I've, I've never, um, ever doubted um, that I did the right thing. That's and that's the weird bit about it, right? And I, and I genuinely don't, mate. I've I've got no issue with what I did. I think um, the criticism that we received, 
obviously me predominantly, but the team as a whole that we received and the lack of support that we received, which, you know, um, from, from our own command, I don't know. I don't know the answer, mate. To be quite honest, I, I, I'm not trying to say I'm a hard ass and I don't have feelings. I had no ill will towards this gentleman. Still don't. Um, at the end of the day, mate, he was doing something that was putting one of my mates' lives in jeopardy. That's that's the reality of policing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not certain, but yeah, if 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 people think police. As a general rule, you know, like I want young cops to know that what you think and feel is bloody normal, um, and and even if you can learn from an old busted up like me, that I felt the same when I was your age. I've you know going to those death messages. I felt the same as you um, when you're going with difficult domestics or what have you, and you feel on the pressures. Police feel emotion, right? We're, we're bloody human. To get the job done, though, you need you do need to suppress it for a period of time. But the problem is, we tend to suppress a lot over a long period of time, and at some stage, it does or can come back and cause people grief. Britt, as uh, as we as we bring our chat to a, a bit of a close, I, I just want to ask: is there is there any message, um, anything you'd like to say to those listening, particularly perhaps police, past, present, young young coppers, or those maybe thinking about going into the job? What 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 would be a message or messages from you? Yeah, look, I think the message for me is, although I can't mentor and support cops physically anymore, I'm not there, uh, what you think and feel is completely bloody normal. Fear happens all the time. Um, that feeling in your gut, the, the death messages, that feeling what you feel is normal and you need to understand that. Um, and for me, if we can just um, encourage uh, the young ones to to really – look after themselves and, you know, it's it's not that difficult. And if I'd said to someone now, you know, especially family and friends, say, what, what's your tip if I was going to join the cops? I go, well, don't make it your, don't make it your bubble. Uh, it's, it's clearly where I went wrong. Uh, I'll be quite honest about it. I lived and breathed it and there was nothing outside of it. Um, as good as policing is, it is a bubble and it's a microcosm of general um, society. There's plenty more really good people out there. But as an 18-year-old through to a 38-year-old, I didn't know that. And the other thing is take your bloody leave. You get extra leave for a reason. Go away, turn off, enjoy your life, enjoy your family, enjoy your family, away, your life away from the uh, from the police, and that will give you longevity from my experience. Mate, I just want to thank you so very much uh, for taking the time to join us from the Newcastle studio. 20 years in the job and uh, anyone that works in the job for that length of time, particularly in some of the environments you work in, you know, there's no debt. You lose a bit of skin along the way. And I just want to thank you for being so honest, so open, and, and for your humility too that's really come through to me and, and it will do to those listening. And, um, mate, I, I just want to say sincerely thank you. Thank you so much for your service and thank you for coming on and um, and having a chat to us. Thank you very much, Brent. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.